Welcome to Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories. Today's show was made on the lands of the Jagger, Kombu Mary and Wakawaka peoples in southeast Queensland and on the lands of the Ngunnawal Ngambri in Canberra. Thank you to the people powering Radio 3CR in Nam, Melbourne and the Community Radio Network for broadcasting Earth Matters nationally across these stolen lands. I'd like to acknowledge that I live on Jagara and Turrbal country here in North Brisbane and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And I always like to acknowledge the ongoing impacts and legacy of colonisation um, and the role that many of us um, are trying to play in decolonising our minds, hearts and spirits and the work that we do here in this continent. That acknowledgement was given by Dr Michelle Maloney, co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance for the sixth Women's Climate Conversation, titled Listening to First Nations Knowledge to Inform Earth-Centred Collaborative Governance. Dr. Michelle Maloney is working with Dr. Mary Graham on a book, Future Law, How Indigenous First Laws, the Relationist Ethos and Ecological Governance Can Be a Foundation for Our Future. We'll hear first from Mary Graham. She was born in Brisbane and grew up on the Gold Coast. She's a Kombu Mary person and is also affiliated with the Waka Waka group through her mother. She's lectured and tutored on Aboriginal history, politics and comparative philosophy at the University of Queensland and at other educational institutions around the country and has held many roles in organisations. Dr Mary Graham. I've always been wondering since I was quite young about how did this come to be, the the things that have happened to Australia over the last couple of centuries? Uh, and then further than that, of course, a couple of thousand, you know, millennia. How did these things happen? How did they come about and so on? And I suppose from a, um, a shared law concept is I usually repeat the question posed by Irene Watson, who, who is an expert in law, both Aboriginal and Western law. By what law do you or these people come to this country? By what law? Because all actions and decisions, everything like that, thinking, is usually, traditionally, culturally, it comes into the area of so how you act, how you make decisions, for what reasons you make decisions, in what area uh, of life or existence that you're talking about. It always has something to do with the law. And so the, the law in that sense, as I understand it, uh, in this broad sense, it's a very, very broad, deep um, thing is to do with the whole of existence. It's not, it's not man-made law uh, in that sense, as I understand it. So I suppose starting off with the, the book and how we had to work these things out ourselves, me and uh, Michelle, one of the very first things I was saying was it's impossible, actually. <laughs> Basically, the whole thing is impossible to bring two such different laws together, not just simply because ours is so old, it's so old and it involves all kinds of things, plus the fact that uh, Western law upholds colonialism and imperialism. It upholds it. It's the foundation of it, actually. So how can two such completely different sort of ways get together? And I suppose that is going to be an ongoing thing 
So, yes, it is very different. There won't be, as far as I am aware, anyway, and no, that Aboriginal law is going to be subsumed within Western law. Not at all. It's not going to, even though it looks like that, and the attempt is always made like that. It just doesn't work. And yet, what we have to do is to try and get on. And this is the brilliance of um, Aboriginal thinking and the cultural history, cultural being, is that they actually did work out a way of how do you live together while people are not necessarily, they don't get on or they don't like each other. How do you do that? How do you continue to live together? But certainly not by living in each other's, as they say, pocket, you know, not by one dominating the other, not by people uh, warring, you know, in conflict completely. And yet some way we have to work this out. And that's the entrance into, I guess, relationalism. And that's what Aboriginal people sort of figured out. So somehow, I don't know how, uh, but I think that's the real question that the book poses. Uh, It's going to be very difficult. But, you know, everybody's here forever, you know. Don't think Australians are going to go back to England anytime soon. No, nor would we want to because we're um, we're all intermarried and interconnected and so on and so on. Things are changing very rapidly, so it is a different world now. But it's still a, it's still an Aboriginal country, as Aboriginal people themselves say, always was, always will be. But I like to quote an old uh, Aboriginal activist called Mum Shirl. I don't know if people are familiar with the name Sydney, uh, Sydney Curry. Sorry, I don't know her mob. Uh, she died now. But she said something along the lines of, um, if only they'd come here differently, not in an invasive way, and told us their problems of being um, kicked out of their country, basically, you know, by convict, you know, the terrible system of uh, suffering. She goes on a, a little bit like that. And then she says, we could have worked something out, actually. We could have worked something out because the people didn't didn't realise or didn't acknowledge or didn't even want to know that we're the kind of la- the landlords, you know. <laughs> Aboriginal people cross the country, they're the landlords of the country. They've run the country for thousands of years, basically, and we worked out how to get on with each other. So it could have been worked out. So 200 years, 300 years later, we're just starting, I, I hope, I, I would hope, that we're just starting to think, well, maybe that's a good idea to work out how we get on, both via the institutions, via that, uh, via um, our institutions, that is too, not just the Western ones, our institutions, a whole lot of different ways, as we said before, philosophically, psychologically and so on. So I'd like to leave it there about the book. Dr Mary Graham talking about the book Future Law, which she's writing with Michelle Maloney. That is the call of Umanjin, the huge white-bellied sea eagle, a totem of the Kombu Mary people. Dr Mary Graham was asked to talk about the relationist ethos and the law of mutual obligation, both important concepts in pan-Aboriginal philosophy. Well, just to start off, it goes way back, of course, when the people who eventually became Aboriginal walked into the country because all these different places were 
uh, different continents, I should say, were joined up, just like Britain was joined up with Europe. Long ago, you know, who knows, hundreds of thousands of years, I suppose, Britain could, and Europe were joined up, they could walk into each other's countries, apparently. Well, the same here in this part of the world too. And so it's thought that people who became Aboriginal, they could walk into the country, not necessarily get into canoes and rafts and various things and come in. And the shape of the continent was very different. So Aboriginal people came into the country, according to the science and the uh, anthropologists, came in and around the country, around the edges, as it was then, and then eventually populated the whole place. Um, they Apparently, other research, this is all different kinds of research, very recent and very modern research too, uh, they eventually met up around about South Australian region, the South Australian region apparently. But the real story behind all of this is the anthropological scientific kind of view of this is that people uh, become aware of their humanness via all kinds of things. They have to look at uh, evidence for this. The evidence is that at the time, for for a long period of time, it was thought that Aboriginal presence via burial sites and drawings, paintings on cave walls or stone walls and, and so on, indicated that they've been here for a very, very long time. So that's the real proof, apparently, of being human. They have to show an awareness of what spirituality is, what a what a life after death, or what is the realm of a life after death, and so on and so on. They have to show evidence of that. And of course, but in our terms, it's uh, the stories, the way of life, um, spiritual rituals, ceremonies, and so on and so on. But scientific needs say that it's uh, burial sites and so on. So the real uh, idea of this is that, that the land has made us human. That's the major ancestral um, reasoning behind our relationship with land. Land, you know, the earth is the raw material of land and land can be territory. But when you sacralise land, like Aboriginal people did, like many Indigenous people did do around the world, it becomes country. And that's exactly how Aboriginal people refer to their particular people's land, in that, as in that map. That's, they're all countries. Great big continent, hundreds, up to a thousand now. They're still doing research in this, different languages. You know, They're all countries. So you can look at it like um, an island continent full of uh, local governments, if you like. Or uh, they can be like, um, you can see it like Genesis, creative dramas. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. Not one Genesis for the whole country and not one government for the whole country, of course. They're all interdependent, a multipolar world. This is where multipolarity is invented here in this country, even though now in modern affairs, modern international relations, they're only starting to talk about it now, the need for a multipolar world where everyone is more or less, not exactly equal, but at least in balance, you know. So these are some of the things that Aboriginal people already worked out. But the real point is that uh, it, it doesn't really matter to Aboriginal people. Well, it's interesting and it's curious how old people are, thousands of years old, you know, tens of thousands of years old. They'll say, uh, older people will say that uh, we didn't come from any other place like Africa. You know, we didn't come from outside of this place, we became human in this place. So the idea is that the land literally grew us up, made us human. And there are umpteen numbers of 
creative dramas actually describe this, how people came out of the land um, in a, in a um, proto-form, proto-human form, all the ancestral uh, life forms, that is flora, fauna, insects, grass, trees, everything, they all help proto-humans become fully human and so on. So you are literally created. That is the creator, what we're walking on. So you are imbued with this idea of you are forever obliged to look after that which made us. And it doesn't end. It just has to go on and on and on forever. So this is also where both relationalism comes from, the relationalism, plus the law of obligation. And the law of obligation in a sentence, in a sense, is you have to look after the life forms and life outside of the self that is the personal self, the family, the clan, connections, and we would say like states, countries, holding outside of the self. And I think that highlights the, um, for my thinking, <laughs> highlights the uh, strange idea from our point of view of people putting their rights in this COVID moment, putting their own personal rights above um, the well-being of others. It's impossible. That's almost like going against the law of obligation. The law of obligation says that you have to, look, you have to, you're obliged to look after the well-being of everybody. So everybody from clans to groups to um, regional centres to nations to countries, they have to put themselves out, look after everybody, basically. Adjunct Professor Dr Mary Graham. You're with Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice issues, broadcast nationally across these stolen lands via the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. This conversation is the sixth in a series presented by the Women's Climate Congress. Women's Climate Congress is a diverse network of women working for collaborative, nonpartisan action on climate change. The online Women's Climate Conversations are ongoing. The newsflash is the Women's Climate Congress is hosting an upcoming National Congress of Women, Day 1. Women Rising. Why Women? Why Now? It's on Tuesday, the 30th of November, 2021, from 10am till 4.30pm. Program and registration are now live. And further details are on the National Congress of Women's website, www.nationalcongressofwomen.com. Let's continue hearing from Mary Graham about relationalism and the law of mutual obligation in Pan-Aboriginal philosophy. Dr. Mary Graham. And the law of obligation, you can, you can see it in some Western systems. For example, the National Health Service, that's a law of obligation. That's what we would call that because it's uh, looking after all the people, regardless of whether they have money or not, whether they can afford it, and it's good quality, high-quality health care, and it's free. So, in other words, it's for everybody. It's not for special ranks, you know, privileged people, you know, are welcomed into it, but they're not running it, (laughs) as, as I'm aware. But basically, it's for everybody, and it's a good thing. People who are trying to get rid of the National Health Service, to me, they constitute people who are against the law of obligation. Anything to do with looking after the environment, taking care of it, trying to protect it, to little little policy things like um, 
I always think of uh, little nature bridges across highways or tunnels underneath the highways. They help to protect the, all the small furry beasties from becoming roadkill, you know. That's a law of obligation too. Yeah. So anything like that, anything at all, um, is the law of obligation. You can put it a different way. It's like uh, the custodial ethic, if you like, the ethic of looking after. It has to be embedded in a, hopefully, in a modern, a truly modern education system. <laughs> so children should learn that. I reckon uh, students of all ages should be required to learn that as important as anything else like English, maths, geography, history. You could call it a sacralised stewardship. Well, we would call it sacralised. Other people, you know, like people who don't believe, atheists, uh, humanists, capitalists, (laughs) they don't have to call it sacralised if they don't want to. But it's an ecological stewardship system. That's what should be an important, probably the most important subject in any school curriculum from the very beginning to right up to university. It should be there all the time, you know. So essentially, that's what the grounding of the relationless ethos is there. So put it in a more generalised way, relationship is everywhere. We all know what relationalism is, but to have the relationless ethos is to have the idea of looking after, of embedding the custodial ethic of looking after the land because you can't look after that you can't have a, a society that knows about having an ethical society without looking after something itself in other words the ecological stewardship that is sort of like the grounding if you like the foundations of a society and then you could start talking about values morals moral philosophy all these other things that make up society you have to have a grounding in looking after something because the idea is that we actually don't know how to do that without having an example before us. And the example is there with the um, relationalism with the environment. The environment looks after us, looks after us, keeps us alive, keeps us human, and then we're obliged to do that uh, back. Reciprocity, that's what the law of obligation really is. It's reciprocity and it's a whole lot of other things of looking after something outside of itself that's the relationless ethos. Dr Mary Graham. Now here's Michelle Maloney. She's co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, talking about decolonising our minds. Before I met Mary, I hadn't really heard about what she refers to as the pan-Aboriginal philosophical approach articulated so clearly and so well for a non-Indigenous person to understand. So I feel that there's so much richness, of course, that's stating the obvious in Indigenous culture and knowledge systems in Australia. But for all of us non-Indigenous people to engage with caring for country and to feel that we can engage with the law of obligation, I think we all have to do a little bit of work around the decolonisation work. And I don't mean to make us all feel terrible, I think we need to really understand, for me, it's a couple of things. Um, To really understand our own culture and history and where we came from and why our ancestors came to this place. And it could be that you yourself came to Australia recently on a plane or, in my case, ancestors came here in a boat. But we really need to understand our own culture so that we can see outside of that, particularly um, understanding white privilege and the dominant culture. I often say the last thing a fish will notice is water. 
And often the last thing a human being is going to notice is where they are part of a dominant culture. They think everyone else is on the fringe or on the sidelines and we're at the centre. We're the most important thing. And the whole idea of decolonising isn't just understanding the colonial process of the British Empire. It's unpacking our brain to understand, number one, non-Indigenous people have come here from somewhere else and we're living on the foundations of and the, the, the continuing culture of First Nations people. But we've also come here with um, some very specific ideas about our place in the world as a species. The European culture, and I can speak from the English-Irish side, somewhere in the last six, 700 years, maybe a bit longer, lost the idea that the living world was in any way sacred or precious. We lost that connection. A lot of people argue that the Celts had this deeper earth-centred culture. Perhaps they did. They were pagans. Many people will never know because not, their culture wasn't written down before the Romans squashed a lot of it. But understanding why is it that folks who've come out of Europe, particularly through the colonial era, which is the late 1500s ongoing, 500 years of a group of people who believed that nature was just property, that to expand and to extract and to use up the earth, to cut down the trees, to dig up the soil, to dig up the minerals, that all this stuff is okay. I mean, I'm putting it at its most basic level. I'm a lawyer. I have a PhD. But the basic question to me is, firstly, what, what kind of culture thinks that trash in the joint and moving on is okay? And that's what colonisation has been. It has mm-hmm. been, here we are in Europe. We've used up all the trees because we've been building all these boats. I'm being flippant because I like to be provocative. But we've used everything up. Now we're going to go somewhere else and use up their stuff. And if you, if you can understand. And or try to understand those different ways of thinking, I think you start to really value what the relationist ethos actually means. Mary and I talk about this in some of our other workshops. And I'm really open about things. You know, I'm not holding up Indigenous culture as the perfect thing and we're bad. It's not that. Mm. I am a human being who passionately loves the living world and I contemplate that. She's a bee nerd too. I am a bee nerd. I particularly oh, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have nearly 2,000 species of Australian bees. They've yeah. got to be loved. But, you know, on a daily basis, I just wonder, as a kid born from my ancestry in the middle of the bush where everyone liked to hunt and kill and shoot and chop down trees, I understood from a very early age how precious and remarkable and sentient all plants and animals were. Why the culture? They couldn't see that. And our entire systemic our law, our economics, our politics, our worldview, our culture, it's all been built on this idea that we can just use stuff up. Now, I'm not saying everyone. We did have these wonderful laws of the commons. And right now, you know, my work in building the new economy network is because I have huge faith and belief and hope in the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people on this continent who are building remarkable regenerative projects. Of course, I believe. But a The key question about what does our future look like is we have to come to terms with our past. We have to understand what's been done on this country. We have to understand the ongoing legacy of elite control of power. And we have to understand our responsibility as non-Indigenous people to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to educate myself about my history. I'm going to understand my own cultural background. And I'm going to embrace this place. And this is my final little rant about decolonizing also means shaking off this notion that we can continue to have a culture in this continent built on European ideals. We still um, put fuzzy snow on our windows of a certain kind of European Christmas in the heat of December. We refer to the four seasons as if we have them. And every locality in Australia has six, seven or eight or four, depending on where you are. 
but they're different. You know, why can't we embrace this place that is so gorgeous and remarkable? Recently, when the Citizens' Inquiry was down along the Barker River listening to Indigenous and non-Indigenous people lament and grieve and be sad and horrified about what's happened to the, the, the Darling mm. Barker River, one older gentleman, an Aboriginal man, said, you fellas have been here long enough. Why can't you love her the way we do? For me, that's the main question. For us to change our society and to change our culture, we have to learn to love this place. We have to learn to love life and to recreate all of our systems to sustain, support and nurture. Mary and others talk about patterning humanity into place and that's what Aboriginal people did and they worked out early on that it made them deeply happy and they never ran out of food and they always had people they could rely on. Our cultures, for whatever reason, the insecurity of moving people across, you know, from different parts of different continents, Mm. that survivalist ethos that Mary talks about, you know, we developed a different way of thinking and a way of being. So the future for our legal system has to be built on these notions of a relationist ethos. That was Michelle Maloney, co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, who's working on a book, Future Law, with adjunct professor Mary Graham. You can see the full video and other conversations on the Women's Climate Congress website and join in in upcoming Women's Climate Congress conversations and webinars. And not forgetting the news flash. The Women's Climate Congress is hosting the upcoming National Congress of Women, Day 1. Women Rising, Why Women, Why Now? On Tuesday, 30th of November, 2021, 10 to 4.30. Check out the website, the National Congress of Women. You have been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced for Radio 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to get in touch with the Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. And to listen to or to share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Look out for more from the Earth Matters team next week. I'm Beck Horridge. To wrap it up, here is acknowledgement from the Canberra Bass Choir, the Chorus of Women.